Welcome to the Remarkable Retail Podcast, Season 2, Episode 14. I'm Michael LeBlanc. And I'm Steve Dennis. You know, Steve, we were talking off mic, and if we thought back five, even ten years ago, I, you know, we might have said electronic retailers were looking like they were going to disappear from the retail landscape. Like it was tough, tough days, even more recently, at least their physical stores. But then something, something interesting happened. Yeah, there was this whole narrative that Best Buy and others were going to get Amazon, essentially, that they were going to serve as expensive showrooms, you know, they'd have all the the retail costs, uh, leases, inventory, salespeople, everyone's just going to go in and talk to the salesperson and look at the product and they're just going to go home and order it from Amazon or someone, someone else. And so, yeah, the narrative for a while was that all these guys were in big, big trouble. And, you know, we obviously saw various high profile ret- retailers disappear over the years from Circuit City to Radio Shack. Uh, Fry's recently here in the States was more of a regional player. So a lot certainly did get, you know, whether they got crushed by the web mm-hmm. alone, probably not 100%. But uh, but then, you know, you have Best Buy who managed to emerge from all this, uh, not only in decent shape, but actually quite quite good shape and has, has uh, certainly been thriving during the COVID times. Well, and, and, and to me, this episode is kind of like the epitome and it really captures part of the essence of your book. And it's something you often say, wasn't it that they had too many stores? It's just a lot of these folks... They just weren't remarkable. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the store was was nothing to be remarked upon. I mean, in in your in in our background, department stores are major electronics retailers. I mean, it's not, you know, the times have changed. But the, you know, they just, you know, they had a lot of stores. Best Buy when they came to Canada, actually, they bought a company called um, Future Shop, and they oh, yeah, ran. Yeah, they ran parallel banners at the same time, which was a bit confusing on the outside, but the models were different. So Future Shop was a, uh, a commission-based sales rep. Best Buy was not. Mm-hmm. And eventually, they just consolidated the two just for practical reasons of, of uh, you know, one flyer versus two. But then they consolidated. They limited their footprint a little bit, closed a few stores. But really, the, the renaissance of, of what is the modern Best Buy really started to take hold probably 18, 24, even 36 months ago. Yeah, well, I think they did a number of things over a period of, of years. Uh, the thing I talk about in the book, from an outside perspective, we'll get an inside perspective in just a minute, was that I think Best Buy and a few others not only saw that they had to up their their digital and e-commerce game to compete more effectively, but they also started to realize the asset they had, the point of differentiation, which was their store and pulling the digital and physical together. And so that's one of the ways to beat Amazon, at least at the current time, because of the advantage of that in-store experience along with the advantages of digital. So I call that the store strike back because I think, you know, as you were talking about, there was this narrative that all these guys were in, in big trouble, but several mm-hmm. of them, including Best Buy, have figured out how to how to really thrive. So we get more of the inside story because our special guest, Hubert Jolie, who is currently the senior lecturer at Harvard Business School, but uh, notably for at least this part of the, the discussion, he's the former chairman and chief executive officer of Best Buy and the author of The Heart of Business, Leadership Principles for the Next Era of Capitalism, which is out today, published by the Harvard Business Review Press. Let's bring him on. Well, we are excited to welcome Hubert Jolie to the podcast. We'll let you, uh, or we'll let him tell you a little bit more about his background, but he's 
probably best known for being the chairman and CEO of Best Buy. He's currently a senior lecturer at the Harvard Business School and serves on the boards of Johnson & Johnson and Ralph Lauren. So welcome to the podcast, Hubert. Thank you, Steve, for having me. So maybe we could just start off with, uh, and we'll get into a lot more depth about your background and, and your time at Best Buy and your great new book, but maybe you could just give us a little bit about uh, how you got to where you are today, maybe just before you got to Best Buy, and then we'll, we'll dive into that a little bit more. Oh, thank you, Steve. Well, from a uh, resume standpoint, I had done quite a few things, which meant that uh, when I got the call to potentially become the CEO of Best Buy, I said, you, you know, you're crazy, right? I don't know anything about retail. I'd been a, a, a consultant with McKinsey & Company. I'd been in IT services. I had been with Vivendi Universal, so in uh, video games and whatnot. I had been uh, the CEO of Carlson Vagoni Travel. Uh, another uh, industry that was supposed to be uh, killed and disrupted by the internet. Uh, then I was CEO of uh, Carlson Companies, which is a hospitality and travel company. At the time, they owned uh, TGI Fridays and Radisson's and Regent Hotels and, and, and whatnot. And then in 2012, I got the call. But beyond the resume, I would also highlight that um, somebody, like probably everybody listening, right, we we grow as leaders. So, so part of the theme of our conversation is I evolved over the years from being a deeply analytical, hard-charging, you know, McKinsey consultant, very focused on performance optimization, to now somebody who believes in human magic, right? So mm. it was a whole transformation. And I believe today that uh, the key to success, you know, is, is not, you know, to focus on profit, it's to treat profit as an outcome. And is to create organizations that uh, are pursuing a noble purpose and put people at the center. And our role as leader is to unleash that human magic. That's what I believe today. Well, and you've reflected that in your your new book, The Heart of Business, Leadership Principles for the Next Era of Capitalism, which we'd love to talk to you a little bit more. Just before we get into that, can you tell us about what led you to the Best Buy opportunity and and maybe how in particular that experience shaped how you think about business today. Yeah, and, and Steve, in tw so we have to rewind to 2012, right? At the time, everybody, right, thought that Best Buy was going to die, right? It was, uh, it was the all-you-can-eat menu of challenges, right? You had strategic challenges with the Internet, Amazon going to kill us, and uh, Apple and Microsoft and Sony opening their own stores. You had operational challenges with the quality of service having gone down, you had leadership challenges with my predecessor having been fired. And then you had shareholder challenges with the, the share price really down to, uh, you know, shortly after I started, uh, $11. And our founder wanted to take the company private. So talk about Now, of course, I love challenges. But what convinced me to take the job is two things, right? It, it, it's, one, it was the fact that the world needed Best Buy, mm. right? As customers, you know, technology is exciting, but sometimes we need help, right? So... We need to see a we need a place where we can see, touch, and feel the products and ask questions, and then the vendors needed Best Buy, right? Because they need a, a place where to showcase their fruit of uh, their billions of dollars of R and D investment. So I think the world needed Best Buy, and the second thing I saw is that uh, the issues that Best Buy had were all self inflicted, and that's good news, right? Because if the issues are self inflicted, you can fix them, and so that's the journey we embarked upon. And so the share price has gone from 11 to, uh, they were close to 120 now, wow. uh, over a period of nine years. So we must have done a few things right along the way. 
Absolutely. Uh, it's, it's quite a story. You, you know, as you as I listen to you and I think back to those days, uh, you know, Steve and I actually met on the speaker circuit and then bonded over our similar ideas that this retail apocalypse was was a media narrative, that it was a myth that that uh, notwithstanding great transformation happening in retail, uh, that that people were missing the missing the real story. They had lost the narrative. Now, you must have run into uh, naysayers. I mean, you, you were handed, so to speak, uh, this organization, which you described, which was in tremendous transformation. The, the narrative around it was that it, it, it was, you know, it wasn't useful anymore. How did you, you know, how did you transform the culture of the organization? Because certainly if you were a Best Buy employee, you would be hearing this nonstop from yeah. every media. And you're like, you know, geez, I, I, should I even work here? Like, how do you, how do you hire executives? I mean, how do you, how do you change that culture and narrative and, you know, the results are obvious, at least certainly in the stock price. Yes. Let's talk a bit, a bit about that. Yeah, and, and you're right, uh, Michael. At, at the time, everybody thought we were going to die, so you can imagine the, the morale. And, and, of course, the advice I was also getting at the time is cut, 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 which is mm-hmm. a traditional recipe of turnarounds, right? Closed doors, cut headcounts. We did the opposite. The whole story of the various phases of the turnaround and resurgence of Best Buy, you know, Renew Blue and then building the new blue, is a people-centric story. So, you know, when we're supposed to die, the first thing I did, instead of considering that people might be the problem, I said, oh, people are probably part of the solution. So I went to spend my first week on the job listening to frontliners. I went to to a store in St. Cloud, Minnesota, Mm. to work in that store and be able to listen to the frontliners. I know I learned so much there. And, of course, you know, if the frontliners feel that uh, we listen to them and then we do, what they feel is important, like uh, fixing our website, fixing our supply chain, investing in the training and in the stores, you know, ensuring we were price competitive, matching online prices. Uh, that all came from uh, the frontliners. Then, you know, that's that's uh, progress. The second thing that's people-centric was making sure we had the right team at the top, right? So mm-hmm. my view in a turnaround, I'm a bit of a Maoist fish. I believe that fish rot from the head. So you need to make sure you have the, the, the right team at the top. And then it was this idea that in a turnaround, the first priority has to be to grow the top line. And so I talked about some of the things we did to do this, including the, the partnership with our vendors and our price competitiveness, because growing the top line changes everything, right? And as long as you, as, you know, to the extent that we need to cut costs and we needed to cut costs, the cost structure was bloated, and we took $2 billion of cost out, the, you know, since 2012, mm. you know, about 70% of the cost takeout came from uh, elements in the cost structure that have nothing to do with people. Um, and oftentimes people get confused. They focus on headcount reduction. That should be a last resort, right? And then it was about creating energy, right? So co-creating the plan as opposed to telling people what to do and then getting going celebrating the small wins, the early wins, talking about the problems and working them together. So a very human-centric uh, approach. And the way you change, you know, I like to, ch- to say that the way you change management is by changing management. <laughs> I also <laughs> like to say that uh, the way you change behaviors, which has a lot to do with the culture, is by changing behavior. Mm-hmm. So if we say we're going to focus on the frontliners and e-commerce and the customers, and that's where you spend your time and your money. In, to a large degree, at least in the early stages, that's how you change the culture. And then in the second phase, which was uh, building the new blue, which was all about how do we accelerate our growth, 
that, that then you evolve, right? It's still very people-centric, but we spend time figuring out what should be our purpose as a company, Okay, so we said we actually not. Here's the scoop, right? You, you guys write, write about remarkable retail. Well, we said we're actually not a retailer. We are a company that's here to enrich lives through technology by addressing key human needs, mm. right? And it's by f- focusing on this purpose, you, you vastly expand the addressable market, right? Because that's what got us to, let's say, initiate our in-home advisor program where if your needs are too complex to be handled in the store or online, we'll come to you. Uh, or our entry into the health space, helping aging seniors stay in their home independently with the help of, of technology, that expands the addressable market. And then the second thing it does is focus on purpose is that it's much more inspiring for people. I think there's, there's something magical that happens when we can make sure that Everyone at the company can connect what drives them, what's important to them in their life, with the purpose of the company. That creates magic. And so to make it very concrete, there was a store general manager in our Boston market. He would ask every one of the associates in the store, what is your dream? At Best Buy or outside of Best Buy. Okay, write it down in the break room. Okay, my job as the store GM is to work with you and help you achieve your dream. Right. That's a completely different way of leading. And I think our role as leaders, you know, is not to tell people what to do. I could ask you, you know, Michael and Steve, do you like to be told what to do? (laughs) No, nobody does. Right. So our job as leaders is to create an environment where everybody can be themselves in the best, most beautiful, biggest version of themselves and where we can create uh, and unleash human magic. Uh, I really love that, and I certainly um, subscribe to this idea. I, I think it's Peter Drucker that said, you know, culture eats strategy for breakfast, and and this idea of, um, I don't know, whether you want to call it customers, customer jobs to be done or just kind of elevating the, yep. the solution. I, I, I'm curious, b- before we get a little bit more into the book, you know, one of the things that I, that I talk about and I've written about for a while um, – Steve, do you have a, a fabulous book that has just come out? <laughs> Thank you. I think I've endorsed it. It's a great book. I would recommend it to everyone listening. Well, thank, I was actually about to publicly thank you for, for blurbing the book, and and uh, it's very kind of you. But one of the things I talk about in the book, and, and I, you know, I don't want to get too in the weeds of this, but you know, there's been kind of this narrative, Michael touched on it earlier, of online kind of growing at the expense of physical when I think, you know, shopping has become much more of a blur and, and as you started to allude to, you know, when, when brands, certain brands anyway, see their stores as assets rather than liabilities, they invest in them. That doesn't mean you don't need to have a fabulous e-commerce capability, but, but I'm curious about how particularly you thought about the balance between digital and physical and how they interacted and how that played out in, yeah, in the you. turnaround of Best Buy. Yeah, thank you for this question. I think one of the diseases that we have to cure, other than this COVID thing, is the idea of zero-sum games, right? The only way for, Steve, for you to win is for me to lose or vice versa. That makes no sense. I think the way we thought about it was all focused on the customer. What are the customer pain points? What are the ways we can make the customer happy? And what's the best way to serve the customer? And we let the customer choose. We're not going to tell the customer where and 
how to experience us. And so we're going to create the best possible uh, experience. And we're going to be agnostic. We're going to be neutral. If they buy online or in the stores, it doesn't matter to us as long as the customer is happy. So that was the North Star. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, in, in our quote-unquote fight against Amazon, even though it was never a fight, you know, we decided, okay, so we, we actually we are not obsessed by them. We neutralized them because we have the same prices. Our online shopping experience, I think, is fabulous now. Our supply chain, we're shipping as fast as Amazon, same day, next day, well, you know, you name it. Uh, and so let's call in soccer terms, we would call this a draw, right? <laughs> right. And then we say, but we're, gonna, we're not going to try to be a me too vis-a-vis Amazon. We're going to be the best version of Best Buy we can be, and we're going to do extraordinary things for customers. And of course, we have assets, by the way, that Amazon doesn't have. And even Jeff Bezos said it, right, when he commented on our, on our turnaround. So, you know, the stores are an amazing experience. Our employees are an amazing, you know, asset, the ability that we have to go to people's homes. And really, you know, our dream at Best Buy became to become the CIO or the CTO for your home, right? And we would use all of our assets, the home, online, the stores, and build a relationship with you. And then, of course, with our Geek Squad capabilities, we're going to support everything you have in your home, right? So that if Netflix is not working tonight, is it because of Netflix, the pipe into the home, the Wi-Fi, the router, the bridge, the streaming device, the TV? What is it? Honey, help me. Well, we can be honey, <laughs> right? And the world needs honey, right? Uh, and so if you think about it this way, you're going to become the best version that you can be and you refuse, you're not afraid, right? You're on the front foot. Mm. Let's uh, let's dig into the book, the the heart of business. It's available now for purchase, uh, May fourth uh, and forward. It's already been available for pre purchase. Already doing really well. Um, you know, when I talk to authors, and when Steve and I interview authors, we like to understand. It started at the kind of basic principles. Why did you write the book? Why did you think um, there was some white space on the shelf for what you had to say? And and talk just about, I guess, about the tradecraft and 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 why you thought that there was something you could contribute. Um, you know, obviously beyond turning the business around. Great story there. But what talk about the essence of the book and why you approached it the way you did. Yeah, it's very exciting to be talking today on the day that uh, the book launches. It's uh, It's been a journey to get there. It's a, Why did I write the book? I felt that, so if you think about this, today, most people agree that, you know, the f- primary focus on shareholders was a mistake, that, you know, we need to inspire uh, our employees to do great things in the world. Uh, so this idea of, you know, purpose being at the, as the North Star of companies and embracing all stakeholders and, and, and mobilizing, you know, employees in, in the pursuit of that purpose, that's the right thing to do. So in the book, we, I articulate this vision that I think it needs to be at the, refo- at, at, at the basis for a refoundation of, mm-hmm. of business and, and capitalism. And frankly, that's an urgent need, right? Because the world's, is not working today, right? So we have a multiple crisis in our hands. So, and, and do you think? And do you think we're at a unique point in time where, if we can't reset it now, when would we? In terms of you know the, the COVID era, it presents a unique opportunity to do what you're describing. Because when else? Let's hope we never have another time in our lives where we can do this reset. Do you think that reset? I, I'm afraid that we just you know, the COVID era starts to wind up and, and we no. just regress back to the mean. Like we don't learn, we learn the wrong lessons. What, how do no. you feel about that? 
you know, the, 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 the principles I'm laying out in the book were relevant before COVID. And, and, and of course, this is something I've, I've worked on and practice and it has been, uh, you know, behind the resurgence of Best Buy. So I know it works. They were relevant before COVID. They are even more relevant post-COVID, right? So we've all rediscovered the importance of purpose and humanity during this crisis. And we know, you know, it is so obvious that, you know, we have this multifaceted crisis, health crisis, economic, societal, racial, environmental, geopolitical. Do you need one more crisis? No. And what's the definition of madness, right? Yeah. Doing the same thing and hoping for a different outcome. Mm -hmm. We know who the culprits are, Milton Friedman, Mm-hmm. with sheltered primacy, and Bob McNamara, the inventor of scientific top-down management. So we need to change. And so the book articulates these principles. I think, though, today most people agree that this is the right direction. I think when I talk to leaders at all levels, there's a general conviction. We also know it is hard. So the reason why I wanted to write this book is as a guide for leaders who are keen to abandon the old ways, and eager to uh, lead from a place of uh, purpose and, and, and humanity, and who are travelers on this journey and need help. And it's not that I have all of the answers, but this is something I've been, you know, on this journey for the last 30 years. I was talking about, you know, the purpose of a corporation is not to make money. It's an imperative. It's an outcome. I was talking about this in the 90s. And I think that the beauty of this delightfully surprising <laughs> turnaround and research itself best by is that it gives credibility. Mm. And so the book is a guide, uh, very practical, with uh, you know, full of stories and examples and practical advice on how to move in that direction. And as we, as as fellow, tra- you know, it's for my fellow travelers on that journey, there's questions at the end of each chapter mm. that can be very helpful. So that was the mission of the of the book. And my mission now that I've uh, passed the baton at Best Buy is to add my voice and my energy to this necessary foundation and, and help others on that journey. So that's why I'm, uh, I'm coaching and mentoring a bunch of CEOs and senior executives. That's why I am joined the faculty at Harvard Business School to help train the next generation of leaders. I think this, to your point, Michael, this is now, yeah. right? And this is... We don't have as much time as everyone thinks, by the way, to, change, have, to make this change, right? We have a, t- a few ticking time bombs, Mm. And we'd better pay attention to them. And so that's, I, but I'm optimistic when I see the next generation of leaders, people want to do the right thing. And I'm happy to add my contribution to this uh, urgent refoundation. One, one quick question, then I want to pass it back to Steve. When did you have, you know, your whole first part of your book is, is really about, you know, the meaning of work. And you've got this yep. great quote by uh, Khalil Gibran, work is, is love made visible. What was your epiphany, though? Because you, as you started at the beginning of the podcast, you said, you know, I was a hard-charging McKinsey operations uh, by the numbers. Like, when did you have this epiphany that, that you're encouraging us to have today what was it that when you looked at, yes. was, was it the transition to Best Buy? You said, listen, I've got to do something different or, or, or did it start before that? It's, it's been a long journey over the last 30 years. So in fact, in the book, I talk about uh, that, but I'll highlight a few milestones. One was um, about 20 years ago. I'd been quite successful, arguably, and I'd been a partner at McKinsey and Company. I was on the executive team of a large uh, multinational media and entertainment company, Vivendi Universal, uh, and so in, in many ways, I'd been at the top of my first mountain, to quote David Brooks's uh, book, The Second Mountain. And uh, But I felt emptiness. There was nothing there. It was not fulfilling. 
And so that led me to introspection, which is something I, I, I highly recommend to everybody, right? Being clear about who do we want to be? What's the purpose of our life? As a leader, how do we want to be remembered? Write down your retirement speech is a good exercise, or even better, your eulogy. I did the spiritual exercises of Ignatius of Loyola, the founder of the Jesuits at that time, to really revisit my life and try to discern my, my calling. So that was a milestone, an important milestone. Another one was in 2009. I started to work with a coach. Before that, if somebody had asked me or told me, you know, Jack or Mary is working with a coach, I would say, what's wrong with them, right? Are they in trouble? They're going to be fired. And then, some, you know, I realized that uh, exactly 100% of the top 100 tennis players in the world have a coach, including Roger and Rafa. Mm. All of the NFL teams have a coach. And so uh, there was this guy, Marshall Goldsmith, his great friend uh, and, and was my coach for many years, is the inventor of uh, helping successful leaders get better and the inventor of feet forward. It's not about feedback. What I did you know, yesterday, I cannot change it, but how can I decide what I want to work on, on getting better, and how can I ask people around me to help me? So to make it very concrete, three months after I joined Best Buy, I told my team, look, this turnaround is going to be hard, right? Let's agree. And the reason why I know this is everybody thinks we're going uh, right. to die. So that's how you know, right? Right. right. And, uh, so the smart yeah. money's against us in this one. That's right. So that means that all of us are going to need to be the best leader we can be. And that starts with me. So I have a coach, Marshall. He's going to come in. He's going to ask you for feedback. And then I'm going to tell you what I do with it. So Marshall collected all of this, the good and, and, the, and the other. And he actually told me, Hubert, you don't need to do anything about it, right? It's your decision. And say, say, okay, I get that. Let me decide that I want to get better on these three things, number one, number two, number three. And then I went back to my team, and believe me, that's painful. Now, I've gotten better at this, but uh, initially when you do this, it's really hard. Thank you for all of the feedback. Uh, based on what you've told me, Marshall, I've decided to work on these three things, one, two, and three. I'm going to follow up with each one of you to ask you for advice on how I can get better. And, um, and then I'm going to follow, you, follow up in three or four months from now to see how I'm doing. And one of the things I've worked on, uh, you know, in the years I've worked with Marshall, is how to move away from being a leader who is trying to be the smartest person in the room, who is adding too much value. Marshall has written this great book, mm-hmm. What Got You Here Won't Get You There. Highly recommend it. You know, he lists the 20 quirks of successful people. I had 13 of the 20 quirks. <laughs> and, and the key thing I now learned... Now I'm afraid to read it. <laughs> no, no, here you go. You know, my name is Hubert. I need help. The, 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 the key thing I learned with Marshall and during my years at Best Buy is that indeed my role as a leader is not to be the uh, superhero who knows everything, who is there to save the day, who is driven by power, fame, glory, or money. But my role as a leader is to create an environment in which others can be successful. It's to pick, uh, maybe the, the most important decision I'd make is, who should I put in position of, uh, of power? What kind of leaders right, do we want? And so being clear about you know, our expectations of leader, and again, I think today 
the world needs leaders who are purposeful, or they're clear about their purpose, what's, you know, what drives them. They're curious about what drives people around them, and they're able to connect what drives the, these individuals with the purpose of the company. There's, you know, of course, I share a number of stories about this. And then who are there to create an environment where others can be successful and, and blossom and who are vulnerable. You know, my most frequently used phrase now is, my name is Hubert, I need help. I don't know. Mm, yeah. <laughs> it's, that's, it's, a, that's, it's, a, it's a major shift. Well, that's one of the things I really love. One, one thing I meant to say earlier is that, and we talked about this off mic, th- this is not a retail book. I mean, I think it's certainly valuable to people in retail because I'm sure lots of people will connect to the Best Buy story in particular. But but it's a leadership book. To me, it's, and I'm using this term loosely, it's a very spiritual sort of book. So I just, I just love how you inject so many different perspectives. But uh, just quickly on this issue of, of vulnerability, um, you know, one of the things that I've observed in my own career, just touch on it really in the book, is this idea of, well, it's somewhat humility. It's somewhat of realizing we're probably wrong. It's asking for help, you know, not, not trying to be just this all-powerful person. Can you just, just talk a little bit about how you, you know, realize the kind of the power of vulnerability for you Brene Brown fans out there? Uh, just curious how, how you got to that and what advice you would give to people to, to kind of let their guard down and, and let people see them. This is such an important transformation, right? And it's hard, right? Because so many of us, self-included, were trained to want to be perfectionists. And for many years, I confused perfection and performance. And if I'm, if I'm expecting perfection of myself, I'm not going to like myself because guess what? I'm not perfect. And I'm not going to like people around me right? Because they're human beings, so they're not perfect. Now, if I can, you know, relax a little bit and uh, start to appreciate, yes, I'm not perfect. It's okay, you know, Uh, in that I can uh, learn to love, you know, all of the quirks and vulnerabilities, then that's how you build genuine human connections. Cammy Scarlett, our wonderful head of HR at Best Buy, One day uh, at the company, she shared with everyone that for years she had struggled with depression following the deaths of her two parents. Do you know many senior executives at Fortune 100 companies who, or at any company for that matter, who are okay to to share with everybody that they're struggling? Mm -hmm. That's not how we've been trained. This created, though, you know, a flow of emails to her from from people who said, oh, I'm so sorry, and then I've struggled with it in... That's what led us to a lot, of, a lot more emphasis on our mental uh, health program, uh, help with, with anxiety. 20% of any human population suffers from uh, mental health issues. During COVID, let's assume it's 80%. Mm. And the, the, the secret to the uh, resurgence of Best Buy, it's, the hum- it's this humanity of the organization. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll illustrate that with a story because I think it's it's how you learn, right? And it's a, it's not a made-up story. It's a true story. <laughs> uh, one day, there is a... Um, remember first that back in 2012, you know, our quality of service at Best Buy, you guys probably experimented it, right, or experienced it, uh, was not good. But fast forward to 2018 or 2019, there's a young woman who comes to one of our stores with a young boy, three or four-year-old. Uh, for holiday, the child had gotten a dinosaur toy. Unfortunately, 
the, the dinosaur is very sick. The head has been dismantled from the body, so really sick. Now, they go to the store at most stores, you know, you would have been sent to the toy aisle, and with some luck, you know, there's still a dinosaur that you can buy. But the, the boy, that's not what he wanted. He wanted a cure for the dinosaur. And so there's two Best Buy associates, two blue shirts, who see what's going on and take the uh, dinosaur, the, the sick dinosaur, go behind a counter and start performing a surgical procedure on the <laughs> sick dinosaur. And like in Good Doctor on Amazon, you know, they walk the boys through the steps. Of course, at the last minute, they substitute a, a new dinosaur, but give the child a cured dinosaur. So you can imagine the extraordinary joy and happiness of the child and, and, and his mother. Now, do you think that there was standard, a standard operating procedure at Best Buy on how to deal with sick dinosaurs? <laughs> or maybe a memo from me, the very smart, you know, uh, CEO on, you know, what you do if that happens? Of course not. Right. right. But, you know, what happened is that these two associates found it in their hearts to create this happiness. And they also felt right, that they had the freedom to do this. And so, you know, my view of leadership, it's, it's about creating an environment where you can unleash human magic. That's human magic when you see it, right? And at the same time, our, our comps were going through the roof. And so, you know, what, what, what I want to share is, you know, all of the ingredients, what does it take to create this environment where instead of being focused on numbers and, oh, you didn't hit the numbers or you hit the number, no. You create an environment where people can be beautiful human beings, the best version, the biggest, the most beautiful version of themselves, and do great things to each other, to customers, to the community in which they operate. Uh, you know, all of the stakeholders with a focus on the normal purpose of the company, and with that resulting in extraordinary economic performance as well as an outcome. I mean, what, what you're describing is a false narrative between either or, you know, performance and and magic, because it's a false narrative you can't ha that you have to make a choice. It's a it's a wonderful uh, it's a wonderful way to wrap uh, our uh, our time with you today. You've been very generous. Thanks so much for your time. The book is The Heart of Business, available at all places where you love to buy books. Uh, it's a fantastic read. I've had the uh, the privilege of having it a little bit early. Uh, to read through it. So uh, I've got uh, the the jump on everyone, but uh, I'd encourage it. Steve, last words to you. Well, first of all, th thanks for joining us. I, I really just love, and I think it's one of the things I've been working on. I'm a little bit more of a glasses half empty sort of guy. And so I just love not only the very pragmatic advice in the book, but just this sort of joyful, uplifting, positive message that not only comes through in speaking with you, but certainly comes out in the book. So thank, thanks so much. And yeah, everybody check it out. It's time for another episode edition of Remarkable or Forgettable. Let's uh, let's start with Amazon. The flywheel she be a spinning. Uh, great results <laughs> coming out of out of Amazon. But I suspect uh, you know when we look at these results, there's more to it. But on the surface, they look pretty good. Yeah, I'd have to deem this remarkable. Uh, sales increases that were fantastic. Uh, I believe the stat that I read, and, and we're doing this just for inside knowledge, we're doing this just right after the earnings came out, so we haven't had a full chance to dissect them, but I believe their total earnings 
in one year were greater than the prior three years combined. So hard not to say remarkable, but we do know to your point, the, I mean, they, they're just well positioned, uh, the AWS business firing on all cylinders, retail growing like crazy, advertising growing like crazy. So, uh, the foundation they built, they're leveraging, and they also just are benefiting from so much of this shift to digital, whether we're talking about AWS advertising or the retail business. And as we talked about last episode, you know, 200 million prime members, the flywheel is just, you know, this uh, this idea of geometric growth is really is really moving, and they got a bunch of tailwinds behind them. Department stores, still a destination for shoes, but I sense I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop on that part of the story. What's, what's, what's the background? <laughs> wow. On? Wow. We are this is, this is like pun central or something. <laughs> well, I know this got a fair amount of pickup in the media. I, I thought it was kind of forgettable. The reason why I thought it for, was forgettable is I think it's kind of obvious that department stores are big players in footwear. And that has a lot to do with the way this particular mm-hmm. um, study classifies folks into different categories. And it just turns out that department stores have both a lot of square footage devoted to footwear. They have a lot of units and the average uh, price point is high. And there really aren't any significant general uh, footwear stores, except at least in the U.S., DSW maybe. But I mean, you know, they, there's just way more department stores uh, relative to just that one one chain, so I don't think this says anything about department stores resurgence, or uh, you know, it didn't give us any real indication as to whether they've been losing share or gaining share. Spoiler alert: they've been losing share. So I, I, yeah, I just didn't think it was particularly interesting. Well, there's a good segue there uh, talking about footwear. I was reading uh, Allbirds and uh, Warby Parker and uh, the Honest Company. They're all planning uh, in some stage or way IPO. So what's going on there? Why now and and what's the you know, what's the what's driving them to uh, to go public? Well, I think two things. The I guess the remarkable part is how hyped up all things e-commerce are and and you know just the stock market is is super frothy so just in general in terms of a time to go to the public markets is is like the perfect storm and when we talk about um Allbirds Warby Away uh the Honest Company uh, you know these are some of the brands that are larger you know more well known mm-hmm. and have a bit more of a track record so in terms of it being um you know kind of being IPO ready. I mean, particularly Warby Parker. I think Warby's you know like twelve years old now, and yeah. you know, hundred stores and uh, great growth, and, and rumored to be profitable, which may not be the case with uh, uh, the other three we mentioned. So, uh, yeah, I think it's just it, it's timing, and and these are just some of the brands that are more on the mature side of the curve than than plenty of others. You know, I think they're reading the right tea leaves because as you probably, you know, we've talked about before, when you look at stocks, there's story stocks and performance stocks. Yeah. Each one of them have a great story. You know, Warby Parker, Allbirds, uh, the Honest Company with with the product they make and and with uh, Jessica Alba behind them with a little tailwind of superstars. So they're all great story stocks and and, uh, they may or may not be great performance stocks, but sometimes that doesn't matter as much. You know, it gets, as you said, the IPO market's uh, kind of frothy. Um, Speaking of frothy, look at the segues I'm making in this episode. Um, Walmart uh, hits the 60 million number for their, uh, I guess, what what would we call it, uh, subscription model, their kind of prime type uh, loyalty program, paid loyalty program. What, what do you think about that? Yeah. So Walmart plus, I think is, it's only been enrolled out, I think about a year. I may, I may have that uh, a little bit wrong, but yeah, it's essentially the, the Amazon neutralizer. 
and uh, so paid subscription for free delivery and, and some other benefits. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, you know, on the one hand, you could say for a company as huge as Walmart is right. and comparing to Amazon's 200 million number, 60 million is not amazing. But, you know, it took Amazon a long time to get to 100 million. Yeah. So I think 60 million at this point is it's it's pretty good. It's it's a good trajectory. What I wonder, and I haven't seen any data on this, is how many customers sign up for both Prime mm. and Walmart. Mm. I think that would be interesting interesting to know as well as what kinds of products are are uh, people using it for for delivery and, and pick up the most. But you know, Walmart obviously has the the advantage of the visit the better um, or the bigger physical store presence. So it's a little bit of different offering. Mm. Yeah, well, and and one of the other key metrics that uh, we know something about is is retention, right? And it's super super high with the Prime program. I think right. they're in the mid '90s, which is just you know Costco like retention. And I guess that you know it doesn't really matter how many subscribers you get; it's how many subscribers you keep. Uh, so that'll be something that uh, I'd keep an eye on learning yeah, about these uh, about these programs. All right, well, that was a great episode. Short, sweet, insightful. That was remarkable or forgettable. All right, Steve, take us home. If you like what you heard, please follow us on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or your favorite podcast platform so you can catch up with all our guest interviews and insights, and new episodes will show up every week. And please take a minute to drop us that elusive five-star rating and tell a friend in the retail industry. I'm Steve Dennis. The expanded and completely revised second edition of my best-selling book, Remarkable Retail, How to Win and Keep Customers in the Age of Disruption, is now available at Amazon, Indigo, Bookshop.org, or just about anywhere books are sold. And I'm Michael LeBlanc, producer and host of the Voice of Retail podcast, and you can learn more about me on LinkedIn or on meleblanc.co. Steve, have a safe week.